Great to greet all of you. Thanks for being here and making worship a priority this weekend. And I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online today as well. Thanks for being a part of our service. And let me just take a minute and talk to you. Uh, because I know many of you uh, who are joining us online are Mount Pleasant members, uh, Impact members, some of you longtime Mount Pleasant members, and uh, if you've not gotten to that place where you feel safe about coming back to in-person worship, I just want to let you know that I miss you. I, uh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about somebody's name or have somebody's face go through my mind that I haven't seen, in some cases, maybe in as long as a year, and I will stop and pause and pray for you and uh, I just want you to know I miss you. I, uh, it's been a pl- I've been, one of the things I've enjoyed is that there have been a handful of times uh, over the last few months when I've seen some of you out in different places, and it's always a joy uh, to get to look at your faces. So just know how much you are missed, and we're looking forward to the day when you are feeling safe enough to return to in-person worship. And if you're a guest with us, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we really genuinely care about you, want this to be a great experience for you as well, and uh, hopefully, if you're a guest that's joining us online, then you live locally here, then the day will come and we'll get to see you face to face. But just want to share those words with you as you're joining us online, as you're joining us online uh, today. Thanks. If you got a Bible, everyone, uh, sorry about that. You got to watch my conversation with everybody online there, and uh, I hope you didn't mind that. But if you got a Bible, take it and go with me to the Gospel of John and the eighth chapter. We're going to be in John chapter 8 as we conclude this weekend, as we conclude this brief three-week sermon series called Messy. And if you've been with us for the first two messages, you know that the basic premise behind this message is if you're going to live like Jesus, which is the will of God for all of us, then you're going to find yourself at times in relationships and conversations and circumstances that can be best described as messy. That happened to Jesus all the time. And that happened to Jesus primarily because Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's something we've talked about each and every week and something that we talked about in detail last weekend as we looked at the familiar story of Zacchaeus. And so uh, we want to talk about uh, another messy kind of relationship uh, or circumstance that we can find ourselves in at times as believers And we're going to do that by looking at the familiar story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8 and how Jesus responded. And really, what I want to communicate to you is that we have as believers two choices when it comes to the way we respond to people who have failed in their lives, people who have stumbled, people who have sinned. We can respond to them in the same way Jesus did, and Jesus does, and we're going to be reminded of that tonight, or we can respond to them pretty much like the rest of the world would. And sadly, one of the things we learn from this familiar story in John 8 is that the rest of the world sometimes includes some very, very religious people. And so I think it's going to be a great message, a great study, and I hope that uh, when we leave tonight, we'll feel uh, like we have really... Uh, learned a lot and been challenged in our personal lives. But before we look at the text, uh, let's talk for a minute about how we often view the faults and the flaws and the failures of others. There's an old Peanuts cartoon. You know what I'm talking about when I say Peanuts, right? Charlie Brown. I love Charlie Brown. When I was in high school, I was in the musical, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I was Charlie Brown. 
and uh, that was a fun experience. But there's an old Peanuts cartoon that shows Lucy and Linus, of course, you know, their brother and sister, and their brother and sister who both have their own issues. I mean, Lucy's uh, very domineering, some might say bossy. She's the one who sits up a roadside psychiatrist booth and charges people five cents uh, a pop for her advice, and Linus is the one who never goes anywhere without his security blanket. They both have their own issues. But one time in this cartoon, Linus says to Lucy, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? And Lucy replies, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And when Linus asks, what about your own faults? Then she says, I also have a knack for overlooking them. (laughs) And the truth is, a lot of people are just like Lucy. And they seem, as they go through life, to have the knack or the gift, some people might even think it's a spiritual gift, but it's not, of seeing all the faults and all the flaws and all the failures and all the blemishes and all the mistakes and all the sins in other people's lives, all the while ignoring their own. But it's even more than that. A lot of people have the ability to see the faults and the flaws and the mistakes and the sins in other people's lives, and then, for whatever reason, decide just to write them off without ever being willing to give them a second chance. What makes that especially puzzling for someone who is a Christian is the truth that we serve the God of the second chance. Somebody should say amen to that tonight. We serve the God of the second chance. I love this passage from the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Look at it on the screen. It's Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The prophet says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That word compassions is a great, great word in the original language of the Old Testament, which is the language or which is the Hebrew language, rather. It's the Hebrew word hesed, used about 250 times altogether in the Old Testament. And it simply stated, it refers to God's gracious love, but it's really much more than that. It's a very comprehensive word. It refers to everything that God's love encompasses, not just his love, but his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his forgiveness and his truth and his faithfulness and on and on and on. Now think about that with me for a minute. When the Old Testament prophet wrote Lamentations, he said that God's compassions, everything that I just mentioned, not only never fail, but they are new every single morning. And then he honored God by saying, great is your faithfulness. Now, that doesn't sound like a God who gives you kind of a one and done ultimatum when it comes to life in this world, where if you make one mistake or you have one failure, you commit one sin, as far as he's concerned, he's done with you. Those verses sound like the God of the second chance that we love so dearly. How about these words from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament? Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. What a great passage this is. The psalmist says, The Lord is compassionate, 
Same thing that we just talked about. Hesed, all of those things that describe his graciousness and his love. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He, note this, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. We serve the God of the second chance. And so why, if that's the case, why if God is so gracious and God is so compassionate, is it so difficult for some of us to be gracious and compassionate to other people when they have failed in their lives, when they have stumbled and when they have sinned? I was thinking this past week about someone that I know who had a really, really big failure in their life. And if I'm going to be honest with you tonight, I will say that on a personal level, I'm having a hard time seeing that person in the light of a second chance. And here's the reason why. Maybe you can relate to this. Their failure hurt me. It was personal to me. It wounded me deeply. And not just me, but it hurt and wounded deeply a lot of people that I love. And so, it's not just a mistake. It's not just an offense. It's not just a sin to me. It's become an emotional issue not an issue of right or wrong. It's become an emotional issue of pain. And that pain is clouding my vision and my judgment. Because as surely as I tell you that story tonight, I also will tell you at the same time, I understand that the Bible tells me that I have a responsibility in my life, the way I live my life, not to grieve God. In Ephesians, not to hurt God. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, the apostle Paul writes and says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. Well, how do we grieve God? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? The word grieve in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word lupio. It means to cause pain, distress, and sadness. It means to offend or insult on the most simple ter simplest terms. To grieve God, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God is to hurt him, to bring pain into his life. How do we do that? Well, we do that when we sin and when we stumble and when we fail in our lives. If we had the time, we could open up our Bibles to the same chapter in Ephesians where we read this verse, Ephesians chapter 4. We could start in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. We could read all the way through Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 7, and we could see a little bit of a list of all the different ways, just a sampling in the list of all the different ways that we can bring pain to God. A short list would look like this based on that passage. We do it when we live our lives like unbelievers, something that we probably do more than we want to admit. When we lie, when we are angry for no righteous reason, when we curse, when we let bitterness take over our lives, when we practice unforgiveness, we choose not to forgive others, when we are involved in sexual immorality, and you can go on and on and on. When we fail, 
spiritually speaking, we grieve the Holy Spirit, which means we grieve God. We hurt the Holy Spirit, which means we hurt God because the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. He's a part of the triune nature of God. We talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he's grieved, he's hurt by our sin. And yet he's still with us, he's still the God of the second chance. And I understand that pretty much cancels out my excuse for not being willing to give someone a second chance in their life because they hurt me, their sin hurt me. Now, I could talk about this for a long time because I think this hits probably all of us, at least on some level, right where we live. But there's a greater question ahead of us. And the greater question is, how do we become the people of the second chance? How do we become a people of the second chance like the God we serve is the God of the second chance. How do we overcome not just our knack or our ability or what we might think is our gift of seeing all of the faults and all of the failures and the sins in others, but also not just that, the tendency we might have to dismiss them or even somehow punish them for their mistakes and their sin. And that brings us to John chapter 8. And so, if you've got your Bible open there and you're able today, then let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the Scripture. John chapter 8 is where we find the reading of the Scripture. And um, I'm going to begin in verse 1, although if you look down there at your Bible, this is a little bit unusual because there's not a verse 1 there in your Bible. It just kind of flows uh, from the end of uh, chapter 7 and verse 53 uh, into verse 2. So, I'm going to start really actually at John chapter 7 and verse 53, and I'm going to read down to verse 11. You follow along. Then each one, excuse me, then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, real quick, before we go any further. Listen to me close. This passage, I feel like I need to tell you this, this passage, and you may already know this, carries some controversy because it doesn't have the same level of strong manuscript evidence that the rest of John's gospel does. And that's because it's not found in the oldest Greek manuscripts of the gospel of John. The common belief among many people is that it was a story that had been passed on through the years through oral tradition and later included in John's gospel. And it's in our Bibles today primarily because at one point it was judged to be true and it is consistent with the nature and the ministry of Jesus. So you just need to know that 
uh, before we go any further. That being said, here's what I want us to see uh, from the story. When it comes to the way we view people who have failed, we have two choices. We can choose to be like Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, or we can choose to be like the rest of the world, which, according to the story, includes a lot of really religious people. What does that tell us? It tells us that there are a lot of religious people who are on the wrong side of things when it comes to the way they treat people who have failed, people who have made mistakes, and people who have sinned. So, I'm just going to make this really simple. I've got a simple, very simple two-point outline that I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm not going to lean heavy into the explanation of the story tonight. I've preached on this story before over the last many years that I've been here, and I've leaned heavier into the explanation. Tonight, I'm going to lean heavy into the application. When it comes to people who have failed, we have two choices, and here's the first thing I want you to see. We can choose to be compassionate or cruel. We can choose to be compassionate or cruel. When the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious men brought this woman to Jesus, it's clear to me that they had absolutely no compassion for her because they didn't care about her at all. They didn't care about her at all. All she was to them was bait in what they thought was a clever trap that they were setting for Jesus. Look back at verses 3. Through six, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And you know the story. I'm sure you're familiar with it, most of you. You can read what's going on in the minds of these religious men They thought if Jesus says, stone her according to the law of Moses, then they could respond by saying, well, where's the love? Where's the compassion that you're supposed to be known for? What kind of a hard heart do you have to sentence this woman to her death? How can you be so cruel? On the other hand, if he said, let her go, they would say, you're nothing but a false teacher and a blasphemer. You're a heretic. How can you not be obedient to the law of Moses? But the bottom line is, and here's what I want you to see, this woman... She meant nothing to them. She wasn't even like a real person to them. In fact, when I read this story, there's only one word in the entire story that captures, that really captures in an honest way, the way these religious leaders felt about this woman, and that was the word caught. That's it. John chapter 8 and verse 44, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. That's all they cared about when it came to her life. They were cruel. But that's not the way Jesus saw her because Jesus was compassionate. And I say that, friends, for two reasons. First of all, because Jesus didn't take the bait. How stupid is it to think that you could trap Jesus? How stupid is it to read through the Gospels and see they tried this multiple times? He didn't take the bait. He didn't respond. He didn't say anything. What we saw in the latter part of verse 6 is that the only thing that he did was he stooped down and began to write with his finger on the ground in the sand or in the dirt. The second reason why I say that he was compassionate was because of the way that he first spoke to the crowd and the way he second spoke to her. Now, I'm going to kind of push the pause button here. 
at this part of this message and this first point, and I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus felt when the religious leaders drugged this woman into Jesus' presence, this woman who had been caught, that's the only word they cared about, in the act of adultery. I'm going to tell you where I think Jesus' compassion comes from on the most practical level, and I want you to pay close attention to me. This is me telling you what I think, okay? This is my conjecture, my commentary based on knowing who Jesus is and knowing the reality of life for so many people in a sinful and a broken world. I believe that Jesus looked at this woman and saw beyond her latest failure, and this is what he thought. I'll just read it exactly the way I typed it in my notes. I'm sorry that you feel so unloved and alone or so lost or so insecure or so powerless and unsatisfied in your life that you feel like you don't have any other choice but to be involved in this kind of sordid relationship in order to feel safe or in order to feel alive. Maybe in order to feel anything. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked at someone who has failed, someone who's made a mistake, someone who has sinned, someone who's made a mess of their life, and in some part of your mind or your heart you thought, I'm sorry that you, for whatever reason, thought that was your only choice? What about if you're a parent? I know that describes probably the majority of the people who are listening to me right now in person and online. What if you're a parent and one of your children finds themselves in an extremely difficult, painful, frightening circumstance or situation, and instead of coming to you for help, they try to take care of everything on their own and end up just making the situation worse than it already was? You could have a lot of different reactions in your life to what they did, But don't you think at some point, at some moment along the way, you would stop and you would think or you would even say to your child, I'm sorry that you didn't feel like you could come to me. I'm sorry that I have done something that made you think that I wasn't available in this moment. And as a result, you tried to handle this on your own. I think that's how Jesus felt. And I think that's how Jesus felt about this woman in John chapter 8. And I think that's how Jesus feels when he looks at you and you've made a mistake and you've failed and you've sinned. And I think that's how he feels when he looks at me. There's an old story about the New York City mayor Fiorello LaGuardia who in the middle of the Great Depression tried to find different ways that he could identify with the people of his city. He would go on rides with the fire department. He would go on patrol with policemen. And one of the really interesting things he would do is he would sometimes preside over a night court that served the poorest ward of the entire city. And one, one evening when he was serving the night court, an older woman was brought in charged with having stolen a loaf of bread from a local store. When he asked her for an explanation, she said, My daughter's husband left her, she's sick, and my grandchildren are hungry. 
LaGuardia looked at the store owner, and he refused to drop the charges. He said, it's, real, it's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia just sighed, and he turned and looked at the woman. And he said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions, $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he was speaking those words, he was already reaching into his pocket for a $10 bill so that he could pay the fine. He said, here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a person has to steal bread for her grandchildren to eat. He instructed the bailiff to go around one by one and collect the fines, the 50-cent fines from everybody who was in the court that night. And he turned over to that woman, that grandmother, who had stolen the bread, $47.50, which must have seemed like a fortune to her in that moment and in that context. Can you see the God of the second chance looking at his children that he loves so dearly when they fail and thinking, I'm sorry that this world beats you up the way that it did. I'm sorry that you got so distant from me. I'm sorry that you listened to the wrong people and the wrong voices and you got yourself in this situation. Now, somebody might come along and say, hey, pastor, wait a minute. The bottom line was this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was guilty. And she should pay a penalty. And you know what? I'm sure there are people here tonight and people who are going to be listening to me online all weekend who have been hurt, deeply wounded by someone's adultery. I don't doubt that for a minute. And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize your pain in any way, shape, or form. But here's what I'll say. While I've never committed the sin of adultery, I've never failed in that way. I have certainly sinned and failed in a lot of other ways, and I'm thankful that even though I know that it hurt God when I did that, that it hurt Jesus, my Savior, when I did that, my sin hurt them, they still look at me with compassion. And it's the same with you. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious Leaders were cruel to this woman because she was nothing to them but a prop in their effort to trap Jesus. She was a prop that they used to promote their hatred and their rejection of Jesus. She could have been anyone. They simply didn't care. They didn't care what had happened in her life the day before, and they wouldn't care about what's going to happen to their, her life the next day. But Jesus did. He felt compassion. They were cruel, but he was compassionate. And we have the same two choices when it comes to people that we encounter who have failed in their lives, who have made mistakes, who have stumbled and fallen, who have sinned. Let me give you a second truth that I think we can learn from this, a very practical truth. When it comes to people who have failed, made mistakes, people who have sinned, we can choose to be uncompromising or compromising, to be uncompromising or compromising. Let's think back to this story for a minute. After the religious leaders dragged this woman, who again was caught in the act of adultery in front of Jesus, and asked him what they should do with her as a way of trapping him, we know that this is the most unusual thing about the story. Jesus bends down. He doesn't respond. He just bends down, stoops down, doesn't say anything to anyone. 
and begins to write with his finger in the sand or the dirt. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows. There's a lot of speculation. I've heard a lot of different answers. I think most people, most students of the Bible would land on believing that maybe he stooped down and he began to write the names of those who were gathered around, and next to their names, he began to write the sins that they had committed, their own mistakes and their own failures, and no doubt some of, if he did that, some of them would have even seen the word adultery next to their name. I mean, the definitive characteristic of John's gospel, the one thing that makes it really significantly different, or one of the things, rather, that makes it significantly different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that in John's gospel, Jesus is presented as God, as God. You don't have to read it very far to see the reality of that. And so, as God, in his omniscience, his knowledge of all things, Jesus would have known every single thing there was to know about every one of those religious men that were standing around making these accusations. But nobody knows for sure what he wrote. We pick the story up in verse 7. When they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The last thing that he said to her, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now. And leave your life of sin. Now, don't miss this, friends, because this is really unusual. Jesus didn't condemn the woman for her failure. He didn't condemn this woman for her sin. But at the same time, he wasn't compromising about the reality of her sin. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's not easy. When you're confronted with the reality of someone who has failed, who has sinned, it's not easy to be uncompromising about that sin in a way that's not condemning. The truth is, it's much easier to be compromising with regard to their sin. But we need to follow the example of Jesus. I know that probably sounds trite. It might even sound like a Sunday school answer, but that's what we need to do. We need to follow the example of Jesus that we see right here in the pages of the Gospel of John. Here's what often happens today in modern or cultural Christianity. We don't want to condemn people when it comes to the mistakes or the failures of their lives, and so we compromise in regard to those things. And we compromise in regard to those things, and we call it or we view it as being relevant. We're being relevant to the culture or being relevant to the modern world. Someone might say, I love and believe the Bible, but it's out of date and it's out of touch with some of its teachings and restrictions. They may have been good for older generations, but it's just not practical or relevant for today. Listen, no one who ever lived was more relevant than Jesus. You should write that down somewhere. No one who ever lived was more relevant than Jesus. And he lived in the world over 2,000 years ago. I'm going to put two verses about Jesus up on the screen, two verses. One of them is a verse that we've talked about in each of the last two, uh, first two weeks of the 
message series. Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, of course, we know these are Jesus, Jesus' own words. He's saying this about himself because he knew what other people were saying about him, that he was a glutton and a drunkard, but for our purpose, most important, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 7 and verse 34, Jesus speaks those words about himself. Here's the second verse, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need. Note this, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Okay, so this is, these are words written about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says such a high priest meets our need, one who is, note this again, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Two verses, each of which contain a critical phrase about the reality of who Jesus was. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 34, the key phrase is a friend of sinners. What do we take from that? He was not condemning. Jesus was a friend of sinners. What does that mean? He was not condemning. Everybody following me? The second phrase from the second verse, set apart from sinners. What does that mean? He's not compromising either. He's set apart from sinners. He's not compromising. He's the most relevant man who ever lived. This is the reality of Jesus' life. And sinners loved spending time with Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't condemning. But at the same time, he also wasn't compromising. If Jesus, Think about this. If Jesus was compromising about the reality of sin and the things that stand between man and God, then he really didn't have anything to offer anybody, did he? And this was the uniqueness of Jesus in flesh and blood in this world, the incarnation, he was not condemning, but he was also not compromising. He didn't compromise with regard to sin. Now, this is hard. It's hard to be someone who is uncompromising and not condemning at the same time. When we studied verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, do any of you remember that, by the way? Can I tell you that I dreaded, and I'm using the exact perfect word, I dreaded the weekend when we would get to Matthew chapter 19. You know why? Because in the first several verses of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about divorce. And I dreaded that message. I dreaded it. Listen to it. Listen to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. I'm just going to read it. Don't turn there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, huh, again, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted, not commanded, permitted you to divorce your wives. Here's why, because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And then here's the verse, listen to me close. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Those are Jesus' words. Talks about divorce in a very straightforward and direct way that honestly is in conflict with the choices that many people, including a lot of Christians, make today. Now, I don't have time to talk about this in detail. The Bible does give some concessions for divorce. We read one of them there, and that is adultery, marital unfaithfulness on the part of your spouse. I don't have time to talk about the practical reasons why there are times when couples should remain together because of abuse and other things that are simply not safe or healthy. But the bottom line is, friends, listen to me. Jesus speaks some words in Matthew chapter 19 about divorce that are hard for divorced people to hear. And they are equally hard to preach. I know people who have not been back to our church since I preached that passage from Matthew chapter 19. I understand the challenges of marriage. I understand the reality of divorce. Both my mother and father were married and divorced three times in their lifetimes. But the Bible is clear about how God feels about marriage and about how God feels about divorce. Malachi chapter 2, 16, the last book of the Old Testament. In chapter 2 and verse 16, this is what we read. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. God hates divorce. But listen to me really close. God does not hate divorced people. See, that's the difference. He's uncompromising but he's not condemning. And do you know why God hates divorce? There's more than one answer to that question, but one of the most important answers is because divorce hurts people and God loves people. Would anybody disagree with that today, that divorce hurts people? I've known people who have spent their entire life running from the pain of divorce, whether it was their divorce or they were the child of parents who divorced. God hates divorce because it hurts people, but God doesn't hate divorced people. He loves them. And it was the same with Jesus, who was God in human flesh. And one of the most powerful things Jesus showed us in the way he treated people who has failed is that God is not against people who have failed. He's for people who have failed. He's for us all the time. He still loves us even when we've made mistakes, but he's not going to compromise on what he knows is best for us. He's not going to compromise on the reality of sin because God knows sin hurts people, and he loves people. He knew that adultery hurts people. He knew that adultery hurt this woman, but when he was face-to-face with her, what did he say? He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He was not condemning, but he wasn't compromising either. So if living out this truth is tied, this truth about how we're going to find a way to not condemn people, but at the same time not compromise on the truth of God's word, if living out this truth is tied to the way we choose to see people and the way we choose to understand people and the way we choose to respond to people, then let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's let him be the model. And don't make the mistake, no one should ever make the mistake of thinking that a lack of condemnation 
and compromise have to go hand in hand because Jesus has just shown us that they do not. I could talk about this more, but I'm over time in the red and I need to close. I'm going to put a verse of scripture up on the screen that I want all of us to read together. I want to hear your voices. It's John 3, 17, right after the most famous verse in the Bible. Read this with me. Let me hear your voices. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. One of the things I've discovered over the past many years of being a pastor is that a lot of people believe that God is first and foremost a condemning God, but that's not the case. Listen, that's not the case, and there's no better evidence than just taking the time to look at Jesus. Jesus, who was God in human flesh. Jesus, who the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 is, three is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He was not a condemning God when he was God in human flesh, and he shows us what God the Father looks like. And you know, if we reduce it to really simple terms, this might sound odd, but maybe one of the reasons why God is not a condemning God, why Jesus is not condemning, is because they know God knows we are sinners and sinners sin. It's not what he wants but it doesn't surprise him when it happens. It doesn't shock him because sinners sin. That's what I've done. That's what you've done. Let's be honest, all of us. But in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, God hasn't turned his back on us. Jesus hasn't condemned us. And we need to remember that when it comes to how we respond to people we encounter in our lives who have sinned in theirs. So let me just close by challenging you to be willing to do two things when it comes to people who have failed. Just two things real quickly. I won't even give any commentary. Number one, don't forget that the God of second chances gave you a second chance. Don't forget that the God of second chances gave you a second chance. The old Baptist preacher, a great Baptist preacher, Adrian, Roger, Adrian Rogers used to say, God doesn't grade by the curve. He grades by the cross. God doesn't grade by the curve. He grades by the cross. You know what that means on a practical level? That means that we all received our salvation the exact same way it came as a gift of God's grace. And your sin is not somehow better than someone else's. My sin is not better somehow than someone else's. So don't ever forget that God, that the God of the second chance, of second chances rather, gave you a second chance. Here's the second thing and we'll close. Don't ever miss an opportunity to pass a second chance along to someone in need. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to spend some time together in John chapter 8 tonight. Thank you for the, the, the lessons, the applications, the example, all of the things that we learned from this passage. And help us. Help us. When we have an opportunity to be face-to-face -face with someone who was caught in sin, in failure, in stumbling, in making a mess of their life, that we respond to that person in the same way Jesus responded to this woman.
And if there's anybody here tonight in this room or anybody listening to me online who has made a mess of their life through one mistake or one failure after another, through sin, I pray that they would know right now in this moment that Jesus does not condemn them. He looks at them with compassion and that God is for them what he has been and will always be for all of us. And that's the God of the second chance. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.